Good morning, Collective Church. My name is Isaac. Uh, I get to be one of the pastors here. We are so grateful for our community partner, Chrysalis, as you guys just saw in the video. We've been partnering with them since pretty much the very beginning, and we really believe in the work that they're doing here on the West Side. And I also just wanna say thank you so much to Megan, who is part of Collective Church, who has been our community liaison with Chrysalis and who made this video uh, possible for this morning to share with us. So thanks, Megan, really appreciate it. Uh, it's really great to be sharing with you guys this morning. Uh, Many of you probably know, I think Lorenzo even mentioned something on our fifth birthday uh, service just a few weeks ago that uh, my wife and I just gave birth to, well, she gave birth, I was just there. Uh, we gave birth to our new baby boy. His name is Itai. Uh, we have a little picture for you. And so I'm showing you this picture so that you'll have pity on me for how tired I am right now. <laughs> Um, but really just wanted to show you that. And I know a lot of you guys have been praying for us. And we really appreciate that. A lot of you guys have sent us meals, which we have so appreciated. You know, Grubhub gift cards and all that stuff has really kind of carried us through these first few weeks of his life. So we're just grateful for our collective community and we love you guys so much. And that's baby Itai. Itai is a Hebrew uh, name. It means friendly. Um, so we're just kind of like hoping that that one pans out. <laughs> but uh, we're, we're super grateful. We've been going through a series as a church called Discovering Jesus through the book of Mark. Pastor Ryan's been leading us. And last week we came to really the, the mountaintop experience that was in the very middle of the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus goes up onto a mountain with three of his closest disciples, his besties. And what happens there is he meets Moses and Elijah, these two Old Testament figures. And the very voice of God speaks from a cloud to confirm that Jesus is his chosen son. And it says, listen to him. And what we notice is that this actually paralleled uh, a scene in the Old Testament on Mount Sinai when Moses receives the law from God. And so this week, what we're gonna look at is when Jesus comes down the mountain and the total mess that is waiting for him there. But before we jump in together, let me pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful for, even though this, this situation requires for us to be engaging online, Lord, that you have continued to knit us together as a community, and that we can expect to hear from you every single time that we're gathered. We expect your Holy Spirit to speak through your word this morning. I pray that uh, my words, if any of them are just not of you, that they would completely fall on deaf ears, but that your spirit would speak clearly through your word this morning in a way that changes us forever and gives us faith to believe whatever you have for us in this season. We pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. So you have some of the, the notes that I've prepared for you guys. There'll be a link in the chat if you wanna click on those to follow along. What I was thinking about this week was, why do we uh, as a society like twist endings in films? I'm pretty sure I'm not alone in that, right? We like being surprised. And I'm not gonna ruin like twist endings for you or anything, so you're like thinking about it too much forever, but it's kind of like a magic trick, right? You're like not expecting something and then boom, something completely changes. And a film with a good twist ending actually spends an hour and a half 
getting you to feel comfortable with the way that reality operates. And then it dismantles your grasp on that reality in a matter of seconds. Like Bruce Willis was dead the whole time, right? And if you don't know what movie that is, I won't ruin it for you, but really you should probably know. But what we say to ourselves, maybe out loud, like if you're one of those people, like in the movie when the twist happens, like, no way, I don't believe it, right? You don't believe it. Why don't we believe it? Because this new information in the movie is that the movie is giving you does not make sense with the reality that you've been presented with over the course of the movie. Many of you study films, so you could probably give me much more of an education on what I just said than I did. But when there are plot twists, it actually takes a rewiring of our minds to believe this new truth that's being presented or to have faith. And that is what we are going to be talking about today. We're talking about faith, which obviously makes sense if you're tuning into church that we're gonna be talking about faith, but faith defined in a very specific way. If you've been around long enough with Collective, you actually re- you probably remember that when we went through the book of Hebrews, we spent probably close to four months on the topic of faith going through 16 different portraits throughout the Old Testament on what it means to have faith. And we learned a lot of things during that time. We learned that it's not a stand-in word for religion. It's not like the type of faith that you have, oh, like the Islamic faith or the Christian faith. It's also not opposed to reason, right? I'm a person of science, I'm a person of faith. Those two are not mutually exclusive. And today, what we're going to look at is that faith is not opposed to doubt. Doubt is not the enemy of faith. Doubt is a companion of faith. There are two words in the New Testament that roughly translate the same Greek word, and it's belief and faith. These are two sides of the same coin, and they're used interchangeably throughout our story this morning. We can define faith as employing the mind, will, and emotions to act on something that is perceived to be true. And this means that there's a possibility to acknowledge that something is true, but to not actually believe it. To really believe is to risk, to risk something based on knowledge that you have. And this is really hard to do. There are a few reasons for why it's so hard, but one of them is that we've actually been shaped by patterns and habits that operate in the background of our lives. Scientists are discovering more and more about how our decision-making processes actually happen mostly at an unconscious level. One scientific journal puts it this way. It says, contrary to what most of us would like to believe, decision-making may be a process handled to a large extent by unconscious mental activity. A team of scientists has unraveled how the brain actually unconsciously prepares our decisions even several seconds before we consciously make decisions, its outcome can be predicted from the unconscious activity in the brain. Beyond this, psychologists have noted that each person has their own personal belief system, or PBS, not the network, but that we use to interpret our circumstances. So for example, we'll have an experience of something, 
it gets filtered through our personal belief system, then we interpret it, and then we derive meaning from it. Now, that doesn't sound so complicated, right? But what they say is that that entire process happens in a quarter of a second with all of the experiences that we have. It's a totally subconscious process. Malcolm Gladwell in his book, Blink, talks a lot about this, and he talks about the unconscious reactions that we have coming out of a locked room that we can't look inside of. That is our unconscious, and that's where most of our decision-making comes from. So today we're gonna read a story about belief. And you're going to see that what on the surface looks like another fantastic supernatural story about demons and possession is actually a lesson about faith, really four types of faith. So let's jump into the book of Mark chapter nine, verse 14. We'll read together. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. So to make sense of this, you have to remember the like recap of last week, right? Previously on Jesus and the disciples in the gospels, which you normally skip if you're watching like the Mandalorian or something it says skip recap. You're like, yes, I will skip that. But we have to understand what's going on here. Like I said before, Jesus just came back from this mountaintop experience with his three closest disciples where he meets with his father, with God, and where God's voice comes to confirm that he is the Messiah. And he comes down from the mountain and he is greeted by chaos. A crowd of people and the scribes who have pretty much been like the enemies of Jesus's disciples throughout the whole gospel of Mark are just arguing about something. And Jesus comes down and this is what he's greeted with. It's this exhausting scene, like his paparazzi just like totally like came and ambushed him or something like that. It's like a reality check, right? When you come down from a mountaintop experience and your life is just there waiting for you. So how does Jesus respond? Verse 16, he asks them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth, so they become rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Jesus asks, what's the commotion? What's going on? What are you arguing about? And his scri- the scribes don't answer. His disciples don't answer. We have another character that comes out of the crowd. And it's a, it's a dad. <laughs> it's a dad who's concerned about his son who has been possessed by a demon. If you're here this morning, you don't really believe in demons or the supernatural. Pastor Ryan actually did a great talk on this, the first demon possession account that we had in the Gospel of Mark, which was several weeks ago. I'd encourage you to go listen to that. But basically, yes, we are a church that believes in the supernatural. This is real. There is spiritual evil going on, and Jesus is encountering it right here. And what he's also encountering is the powerless faith of the disciples. Jesus had sent his disciples out on trips prior to this moment in the gospel of Mark to teach and preach and heal the sick and cast out demons. 
and they were successful in those previous times, but something is different this time. They weren't able to do it. And what is Jesus's diagnosis of the situation? Verse 19, he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Jesus draws back the curtain of the spiritual situation to examine that there's a different problem going on and it's about faith. Remember I said the mountaintop experience that Jesus had earlier was a parallel to Moses on top of Mount Sinai meeting with God. And this experience of Jesus coming down from the mountain is also a parallel to Moses' experience coming down from that mountain. We can read together in Exodus chapter 32, what happens when Moses comes down from the mountain? And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff necked people or a faithless generation. Jesus makes a spiritual diagnosis of the situation, right? There's an obvious spiritual battle going on here. A boy is brutally possessed by this demon that Jesus' disciples for all their training and exorcism have not been able to cast out. But Jesus takes it to an even deeper spiritual battle. And that is his disciples' lack of faith. Anyone can see weeds growing in a garden, but Jesus wants to expose the roots. And when he talks about the faithless generation for the first time, he's not just talking about the scribes or the crowd, he's talking about his own disciples and lumps them all in together. And he says, how long am I to be with you? (laughs) Jesus is tired of their unbelief. I think it's especially poignant because he just had this experience with his father and he's thinking ahead to when he'll be reunited with God after his death and his resurrection. And the time that he has left here on earth is quite a reality check for him. Jesus had told his disciples what was going to happen to him, that he would be betrayed and crucified and he would rise again. And he was actually preparing them to not be with him anymore. They would have to continue his work after he was gone. And at this point, it does not look like they're on the path of success. If Jesus just leaves for like an afternoon trip to go to the top of a mountain and comes back to find complete failure, what are things gonna look like after he's gone? So we see the disciples' powerless faith And next we see Jesus continue to put his finger on the situation and another type of faith pops up. Let's read verse 20. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, 
have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. So we read on and we see the severity of the situation. This boy is actually being harmed by the demon and has been since he was young in such a way that causes him self-harm. And Jesus, rather than just immediately healing the boy, which he's done so many other times in the past, when he's confronted with the demon, he's just like, you're out of here, gone. Why does Jesus ask a diagnostic question? He, he's like playing doctor here. Why doesn't he just heal like he does every other time? It's because Jesus is peeling back the layers of this obvious spiritual problem to reveal something else going on. There is a battle for belief, not just of his disciples, but now of this dad, the dad of this boy. And this is the centerpiece of the story because the dad says, if you can do anything, the dad doesn't, you know, he he knows that Jesus wants to do something, He knows that Jesus, you know, if he could do something, like it's not for a lack of compassion that Jesus would withhold, but he thinks maybe because the disciples of Jesus couldn't do anything about the situation, maybe Jesus is not gonna be able to do anything either. And Jesus responds and repeats what the father, the dad says. He says, if you can, and he's not offended. (laughs) Jesus is not offended by the dad's words, but he's actually saying, this is exactly what I was talking about. Faithless generation. You can see it right here in this dad who rightly so is really frustrated by the situation, but it causes him to doubt. Jesus decides to suspend time. (laughs) He puts the obvious need of this demon-possessed boy on hold to drive down to the deeper issue at hand the scene of the crowd just gathered around and the scribes and his disciples arguing with one another, all of that going on around him, the demon-possessed boy writhing on the floor and Jesus confronts this dad and offers him an opportunity for his faith to be born. Jesus has withheld healing power in the past where faith was not present, but instead of just saying, forget this, he interacts with this dad and it is then that this dad realizes that the question of whether the healing will take place is not dependent on whether Jesus can or cannot do it, but whether he will believe. So how does the father respond? With paradoxical faith. Verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. We need to camp out here for a little bit. We need to sit with the cry of this dad, this man who has come to the end of himself and stands in the gap for his faithless generation and admits what is going on in his heart. This statement that he says is not by any means an oxymoron, it is a paradox. Oxymorons are logical inconsistencies. Paradoxes appear to be contradictory, but actually reveal a more profound truth. 
logically, belief and unbelief are opposites, but in the life of the Christian, they are actually in a strange partnership with one another. Many people within the church have the experience of feeling like they need to hide this, like they need to hide this experience of doubt and unbelief and to stuff it. Like if somebody finds out or if I'm really real with myself about how much doubt I'm actually feeling, like I don't really belong here. One pastor calls this process undulation, which is a word that means the experience of going up and down and up and down. And he says it is not a crisis of faith, but actually part of the life of faith. And it is denying this reality is what causes the problems. This is what he says. We don't like to admit this about ourselves. Up, down. Doubt makes us look wobbly. We don't want to look unstable. We don't want to look weak. So we often don't give others the space or room to express what they're really feeling or going through to the point where it doesn't feel safe, especially among the pretty and clean, to admit what is going on in your life. If you don't talk about it, it either leads to superficiality or withdrawal. You'll think, I don't belong here among these happy people. Friends, this is the great paradox of faith that acknowledging our doubt actually places more confidence in God rather than in ourselves, that he can deal with our unbelief rather than trying to conjure up a powerless faith, the kind of faith that the disciples tried to have when they cast out this demon, but could not. It is a faith in ourselves rather than in God. And I want to pause here briefly to address those of you who might be streaming this this morning and have nothing to do with belief in God or following Jesus. And so this whole conversation about faith might highlight the distance between yourself and the Christian faith or Christianity. Uh, And the idea of, you know, risking your whole life based on this unseen reality that cannot be empirically proven is what causes many people to keep Jesus and the Bible at an arm's length. Like, why should I base all of my important life decisions on believing the claims of some guy who lived 2,000 years ago? It's all blind faith, right? Now, this, this is not gonna be the part where I break out all of the proofs for the existence of God or hash out like the moral argument for the universe or talk about the evidence for Jesus's resurrection, although all of these things are really important and great and you should investigate them if you have not. I'm sure Pastor Ryan has a book recommendation for you. You can start with Tim Keller's uh, Making Sense of God if you'd like, um, but I'm sure Ryan has other good suggestions. But for now, it's, it's good enough to say just a couple things. First, we all need to acknowledge that we are all people of faith. If you are not a Christian, you are still basing your life on some belief or philosophy that cannot be empirically proven, but that you hope will turn out to be the right thing in the end. Whether it's that everything is meaningless and that affords you kind of peace of mind. So like whatever I do doesn't really matter as long as I don't hurt anybody, or that maybe one day we'll just all cease to exist so that nothing really matters anyway. But my question is, have you examined those beliefs closely enough? Do you know where they came from? Where you learned them? 
Aren't these questions big enough to warrant a serious amount of exploration if they subtly affect the way that you live your entire life? And moreover, do these beliefs actually make sense of the world that we're living in? So that's the first thing. Second thing is gently, if you're able to acknowledge the risk that you are taking in the beliefs in your life, have you considered this Jesus? Not the one that you might've been told about, but the Jesus who welcomes you to bring all of your doubts and all of your questions to the table, who doesn't ask you to check your intellect at the door. You really have nothing to lose. And just as this dad has experienced, as he acknowledges his doubt, something's going to happen. But there's another dynamic that's going on here, just other than just the acknowledgement of this dad's doubt. It says that the dad cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. And in the original Greek language, this phrase cries out, cries out that he cried out is actually only used here and of demons when they are being delivered out of people. This is to highlight, I believe Mark did this on purpose to highlight that these are two battles that are going on. The demon possessed boy and the father's fight for his faith. Because believing the truth is just as much of a spiritual battle as this demon possession going on right here. Belief or unbelief is not a one-time choice that we make at the beginning of a relationship with God. It is an ongoing battle to choose to base our lives on what we know to be true. To actually risk and place the full weight of our faith and trust on God. And this is so hard, guys. (laughs) It really is. Because as I said, not only is it a spiritual battle, but because we have been shaped by patterns of unbelief. Unbelief is actually the default setting of our hearts because of sin. It is a state of spiritual rebellion against God that affects our whole selves, mind, body, spirit, soul, whatever kind of bifurcation you wanna make. And remember what I said about the personal belief system that takes a quarter of a second to process information. This is why the apostle Paul in the New Testament book of Romans pleads with his readers not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We cannot do this ourselves. We need humility to see that there's more going on in our brains in our hearts and at a spiritual level than we are actually conscious of. And this portrait here of this dad's cry, this is what faith looks like. An acknowledgement that we are powerless to conjure up the faith needed to change ourselves or our circumstances. We need God to intervene. And it is this dad's cry for help in his unbelief that actually proves the genuineness of his belief that he doesn't just want to stay there. So is this the faith that Jesus was looking for, this paradoxical faith? Let's read on verse 25. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, 
saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Things escalate quickly and get more intense. The scene had already attracted a crowd when the disciples couldn't cast the demon out before, but now there's an even bigger crowd that presses in on the situation as it's obviously gotten loud and boisterous and there's something going on. So more people press in to see what's happening as Jesus responds to this dad's faith. It's almost like a horror movie is going on, right? There's like the disciples unable to cast out the demon. Then we hear that it's been going on for years and the boy has been harming himself. Next, the demon actually reacts to the presence of Jesus and resists him. And lastly, it looks like Jesus has somehow failed because when Jesus says something, the boy appears to have died. Why is Mark drawing our attention to this? What is he trying to tell us? Other than the fact that obviously this is how it went down historically, what is the significance of the child appearing dead? Well, as I mentioned, before Jesus went up on the mountain, he had just revealed for the first time what was about to happen to him. He said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days, rise again. See the words in the Greek that are used to describe this child's death and being raised up are the exact same words used to describe Jesus's death and resurrection. This is the paradox of the powerful faith that Jesus is responding to here. In the moment that it looks like all hope is lost, that is where life breaks in. Just as when Jesus goes to the cross, as he'll do later, in that moment that he is on the cross, he has been apparently stripped of all of his power. And it is in complete humility and weakness that in that moment, God's power is being made perfect. Jesus displays humility and dependence on the Father, God, when he goes to the cross, and it is far from weakness. These things are the keys to experiencing the power of God. So the way that Jesus defeats Satan here in this episode with the boy foreshadows the way that he would do it definitively on the cross. And the way to experience this victory is only through belief, the type of faith that this dad shows. Because ultimately faith in Jesus is an identification with Jesus, both in his death and in his new life. The father in humbling himself in his unbelief and expressing that to Jesus is humbling himself to the point of kind of a spiritual death so that he can be reborn in faith. That is why When people believe in Jesus, they're baptized. A symbolic act of doing exactly what Jesus does, the humility of death enabling the glory of new life. 
And the grammar of the story is actually ambiguous about who is receiving Jesus's power when he does this. It doesn't necessarily say it's the boy. I think Mark does that on purpose to show us how the father, this dad, is identifying with Jesus in his own death and resurrection as he humbles himself and becomes dependent on God's power. Because true faith is nothing less than spiritual death and rebirth. We have to ask ourselves today if we are willing to knowingly face the death of our pride, our ego, our self-reliance, so that faith can be born in its place. But as I said earlier, this, this whole experience was a lesson for Jesus's disciples. So let's see if they learned the lesson of Jesus's powerful faith. Verse 28. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? The immediate change of scene to the disciples in a house without concluding the story with the dad and his son shows us that this story was actually more about the disciples' faith even than the demon possession. Mark has often used the literary device of Jesus in a house with his disciples to reveal where the real meaning of the story is at. And what we see here is that they don't get, the disciples still don't get that Jesus's comment about a faithless generation was also about them. They could not see that their error was one of faith. How did they miss that the real battle going on the entire time was for their faith? The same way we miss it. <laughs> when there is a more obvious battle going on that competes for our attention. For the disciples, it was ironically a spiritual battle of this boy and the demon that distracted them from seeing the real spiritual crisis of their unbelief. It's something that they could point to outside of themselves with certainty and say, there's something wrong over here, obviously. But for us, the distraction can be just as ironic where we can find a battle to throw ourselves into out there rather than in here, where we can say, see this, this is what's wrong with the world. We choose the better known devil. The most obvious one uh, lately that Pastor Ryan has been calling us to reflect on is our political idolatry. How we can get lost in the battle of our particular political moment. Not that it's not important, it certainly is, but to the degree that it draws our attention away from the importance of our faith. And this is actually true of all forms of idolatry, something that we looked at in the story of justice. These are good things that become ultimate things in our life and occupy a space that only belongs to God. This can happen with so many things, friends, our careers, good causes, even activism, relationships. These are ultimately different forms of trusting in ourselves. And we say with the disciples, how come we weren't able to do it? Why am I powerless to affect change in these situations in my life? Why am I constantly being disappointed? And this is when we often get confused and upset and become disillusioned when the thing that we've been trusting in doesn't deliver. And the thing we've been focusing our attention on 
does not keep its promises. But friends, this is exactly the moment when God wants to direct our attention to him. Jesus says, yeah, I see that thing over there. But what's, what's going on here? What's going on between us? Author uh, Mark Sayers talks about this very phenomenon. And he says, this is a move that the devil will attempt to ferociously undermine. He hopes we will not look heavenward in desperation, but instead glance horizontally, searching for false answers and earthly justifications for a spiritually fruitless life. For Satan is in the game of diminishing expectations. Maybe you're thinking, maybe, yeah, I've been trying this Jesus stuff. It's really not panning out for me. Um, Maybe I put too much faith. (laughs) It's really not panning out. And that's how the disciples were feeling at this moment. How come we weren't able to do anything about it? So how does Jesus draw their attention away from the obvious battle to where it actually needs to go? Verse 29. And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Why prayer? Why wouldn't he have just said, I told you guys, you didn't have enough faith, right? Called you the faithless generation. The whole thing was about faith. You didn't see that? What's wrong with you? (laughs) Why does he talk about prayer? Is he suggesting that the disciples didn't say some like obligatory prayer formula? Like they didn't say the right words when they were trying to cast out the demon? Like it was Leviosa. No, no, it's Leviosa. No, okay. Not at all. No, that's not how prayer works. Jesus emphasizes prayer because prayer is the language of faith. One author puts it this way. He says, prayer is not a special technique, but the end of all technique. For prayer is simply the verbal expression of faith, which looks holy to God for the release of his power. This is prayerful faith. Christian, if you hear nothing else today, hear this. Growth in prayer is the antidote to unbelief because prayer is the language of faith. Listen, we can't live in the kingdom of God without learning the language. If we are going to fight against our fate of becoming just like this faithless generation that Jesus talks about here, we need to be people of prayer. This is something that we've practiced since the very beginning of Collective Church. We want to be people of prayer. Prayer, we did a whole series on it. We called it dependence. Prayer is utter dependence on God. And here's perhaps an even more encouraging part, because maybe you feel like the father in this story. Let me encourage you that the prayer that Jesus is talking about here is not his own prayer. He's talking about the prayer of the dad in the story. Jesus was not the one praying to cast out the demon. He was the one being prayed to. The prayer is the one of the father. When he says, I believe, help my unbelief. Growth in prayer leads to greater intimacy with God, but it has to start with these simplistic, primitive baby cries 
like the dad in the story. I believe, help my unbelief. I am praying, God, help my prayerlessness. I do trust you, help my distrust of you. These are honest prayers and they cannot happen if we feel like we have no need for them, if we feel like we should have graduated past them, if we feel like we've progressed too far in the Christian life to be confronted with our desperation to cry out to God. If we feel that way, we are hindering our ability to see God's power at work in our lives. Lastly, I want to address maybe those of you who feel like you have been the dad in this story and you've been that way for too long. You've been crying out just like this father. I I don't say this flippantly, but I say it emphatically. You are in good company. One of the most real, raw, and honest prayers in the Bible also comes from the Psalms when the writer cries out, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? This is not a prayer of unbelief. It is a prayer of faith. One of the reasons God does not call us to walk this journey of faith alone is because we need to depend on one another when we are feeling this way. Growth in discipleship to Jesus is a communal process. This is why we have discipleship groups. If you're not in one, talk to somebody, get in one. This is where we fight for our faith in community. We fight together. 